Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text Monica to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me here on this Wednesday. We are midweek, and I'm glad to have you on board. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Please check me out on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and Truth Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, you can shoot me an email about this show too, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. That's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. I see them all, I read them all, and I could read yours right here on the show. So, again, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. We've got a fantastic email for the end of the show, so you're going to want to sit for that. I also want to mention on Friday, we're going to kick off Independence Day weekend with a rollicking good time of a show. I've got two fantastic guests who are coming on. They are hilarious. They stand for freedom. Uh, one of them almost uh, nearly lost her business because early on in the pandemic, she refused to close. She is dynamite. She and her partner are fantastic. It's going to be a riotous time, so you're not going to want to miss that. And I've got a few things I want to say on this Independence Day about our founding fathers and where we are today. You're not going to want to miss that, I promise you. 
Okay, let's get right to it because we've got a very special guest today. Kellyanne Conway served as senior counselor to President Trump after having the distinction of being the first woman to manage a winning presidential campaign, the Trump-Pence campaign of 2016, of course. She is one of the country's premier political strategists and pollsters, and she has done it all with four children and a family in the harsh glare of the spotlight. She has just published her fantastic new memoir. It's called Here's the Deal. It is fascinating. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and deservedly so. I am so happy to welcome my longtime friend, Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne, welcome. Oh, Monica, thank you so much for that introduction and for your friendship and alliance of decades, literally. I, literally. Great to be in the trenches with you on all the major conservative fights. Well, it's just been such a joy and a pleasure and honor to be in the foxhole with you all these years as well, Kellyanne. And congratulations on the big success of Here's the Deal. It's so well-deserved. It must be incredibly gratifying to spend all of, first of all, your life in service of this country and then write your memoir and have it go zooming right up to number one on the New York Times list. It's been a labor of love, certainly. It is my memoir. Obviously, Donald Trump is is a part of it. But it does, not unlike you, Monica, tell the story of one woman's journey. And it's a little bit circuitous, has been very bumpy. But in many ways, it's also everybody's American dream story because this is the greatest country God has ever put on the earth. And with a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck, anybody can achieve her dreams. Um, I also you know, do cover in the book what I think goes to this whole matter of being debuting number one on the New York Times bestseller list, it's it's hard to be a, a woman in conservative circles and Republican polling. It's a very male-dominated industry, and that, that seat at the table was not always freely given. And if you just work hard, you sort of outsmart and outwork and outfox lots of people. But you still see this, I call it the triple if not quadruple standard, uh, being treated by our mainstream media in such a way, if you are a conservative woman, it's almost like we're a specimen under the microscope. Why would that be? Um, why aren't they, why don't they believe this on abortion? Why don't they believe this on guns? Why don't they believe, believe this on the role of the federal government or the importance of school boards and not parents deciding where their children go to school and what is taught? Them? And the list goes on and on, as you well known for years. And I, it's pretty regrettable because at a time when you have so many more women becoming involved in conservative and Republican causes and politics, and indeed all the way to running for office themselves, that 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 we still are sort of held back by some of the um, some of the subtle biases being peddled by the mainstream media, often by women. You know, Monica. After two thousand eight, I had two daughters and now three. But after the two thousand eight election cycle, I just felt icky. I said, "This is just terrible." The way Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton were treated, Hillary Clinton, all the stories about her cleavage and she's crying and Obama saying to her, you're likable enough, Hillary. Sarah Palin, of course, being completely excoriated by the never Trumpers who put her there as John McCain's running mate. And of course, by the mainstream media, always making fun of um, her voice, her education level. Oh, who's going to care for her five children? And I'm not sure that we're that much far along in terms of the treatment. Fortunately, we're much farther along in terms of the accomplishments that so many women on the conservative and Republican side of the ledger 
can claim for themselves. You know, it's a really important point, Kellyanne, and I'm glad that you're raising this because, you know, you and I and and like Laura Ingram and, and a couple of others sort of came up together. But I think beyond our example, I think that women were really the first core constituency of the Democrats to begin to peel off. Now we're seeing it happening in droves with black voters, Latino voters, Asian Americans, uh, younger voters. But back then, it, it wasn't happening. The Democrats had a real lock on all of these constituencies. And while we were out there publicly, there were women across the country who were saying, wait a minute, I, I don't think the Democrats are really answering my insecurity, you know, economic insecurities, they're not addressing my issues. They began to peel off first. And so those of us who were in the media or running for office, we, we represented an existential threat to the Democrats early on. And that's why I think at least one of the reasons why we came under such scrutiny and such attack. There's no question. And look, you were in an entirely different field first too, where you are, you were so close to former president Richard Nixon and, and helping to tell his story. You are a bona fide national security foreign policy expert that puts a whole other layer on it. It's like, well, what is, what is a conservative woman? And may I just say, um, in, in, a beautiful one inside and out at that, which really drives them crazy. What is Monica Crowley doing out there when it, it should be X, Y, and Z? It should be just Madeleine Albright. It should be Hillary Clinton. It should be. So yes, I think that uh, that is an awful lot of the scrutiny. And also what you said, that's most importantly, because there's being, a, there's a realignment right now politically among many women, among many non-white voters, among many union households, uh, just really the, the constituencies that were seen as the bread and butter of the Democratic Party. But let's quickly examine why that is. They're not leaving the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left them first. And it left them in a way that is not unlike what President Reagan said, or Mike Pence, or Donald Trump, all former Democrats. Why did the party leave them? Because the party no longer worked for them on what I call the SAFE acronym, particularly for women, security, affordability, foreign policy or fairness, depending what's going on, and then now education. And uh, with security and affordability, it's just so obvious. Putin is in Ukraine. A nuclear-capable Iran is salivating at Israel. The, our, our sovereignty is gone because we don't enforce a physical border um, to the south. And we, and we don't much care that the number one cause of, of death among 18 to 49-year-olds is fentanyl, which, of course, is coming over the border and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it goes on and on. Everyday affordability is compromised. But, you know, here's the problem for the Democrats. They think if you're Hispanic, you only care about immigration. So they're going to let 2 million people flow into the border. Um, if you're female, you only care about abortion. So they have narrow-casted Americans according to their race or ethnicity or their gender. And you know what a lot of Hispanics are saying now in this country? Yes, you're right. I do care about immigration and border security. And you, the Democrats, are on the wrong side of it. But they're also voters who have values of of religious liberty, of education, of upward economic mobility. And it's the Democratic Party, Monica, that for decades narrow-casted individuals based on their immutable characteristics like race and gender and age. And also that that believes we're all single issue voters because we're single issue thinkers. Now, I like to say, and I did say in my book, there's an entire chapter called Life of the Party, and it's enti- it's, it talks about the arc of abortion opinion 
over decades. And it really brings us to the point we are now where so many Americans are outraged and appalled at the extreme positions of the so-called pro-choice movement, late-term abortion, taxpayer-funded abortion, abortion because of sex selection purposes, abortion long after a a nonpartisan scientist say a baby can feel pain. But I think one thing I put out in my book I'd like to share with your listeners is that the Democratic Party brags that they talk to women that they're they're the pro woman pro woman party, but they really only mean on abortion because women in extreme poverty and women with children in extreme poverty grew under President Obama. Um, their economic wherewithal was much less. Uh, guaranteed under Obama and now under Joe Biden than it was, say, under Trump and Pence. So I like to say, um, we're women, but stop talking to me from my waist down only. It's my waist <laughs> up. My, my waist up is where my brain, my heart, my eyes, my ears, and my mouth are. Mm-hmm. And I think the party that is talking to union households about bringing back manufacturing and stop shipping jobs and our wealth overseas to Mexico and China, the party that talks to the job holder, the job creator, and the job seeker, and the one that is the one that treats all women as if they can do the math when it comes to small business formation, uh, kitchen table economics, certainly long-term retirement security. And I think the party that can call out one of the greatest lies ever told to Americans, something you and I worked really hard on years ago, which is you can keep your plan, keep your doctor. That was a big lie. And that everyone mm-hmm. will have health insurance, another big lie. So women are paying attention. Last piece of it is the education piece. You don't need to have children. And you don't need to have children in the school system to care about all of that. We all care about that. And we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And Monica, let me tell you, the conservative women, Republican Party are on the right side of this issue because 60 years after bigoted Democratic governors in the South were were preventing kids of color from getting into the schools, bigoted Democrats all across this country are preventing kids of all backgrounds from exiting failing schools and going and accessing a quality, affordable education worthy of their dignity, humanity, and futures. Yes. Amen. Oh, preach on. Preach on, my sister. Um, You know, there are two brutal truths here about the Democrats. Number one, they always jump the shark because essentially now they're neo-communists. So they cannot stop themselves. They can't help themselves. They have to reach for the most extreme position, say, on abortion, all the way up to the moment of birth and so on. They, They can't help it because that's what their ideology and agenda drives them toward. So inevitably, they jump the shark. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing, too, is that the American people are now on to all of this, right? And and they're keenly aware of what the agenda is on the other side, and that's why they are. They're turning their heads away from the Democrats, saying, you know what, this is, this is too much. They've taken it a couple of steps way too far, even for me here. And this is not the agenda that I signed up for when I've been voting for them endlessly, Right. There's no question. And I think part of that is information access. So for all the legitimate claims of big tech censorship and bias and uh, heavy handedness, the fact is um, these these evil organs, um, as some of them have have become uh, and the people who the oligarchy that is uh, overseeing them, Monica, they still could not prevent each of us accessing information. And I have to give President Trump and his administration credit for what I call the democratization of information. And what that means is whether you liked his tweets or not, 
everybody in the country, if not the world, had instant free of charge access to a presidential communication. Mm -hmm. And I like to say President Trump needs to tweet like we need to eat. It's just about better choices. I didn't love all of his tweets. (laughs) And I was always very, you know, comically fun, you know, lighthearted with him about that. I said, well, I don't like when you attack people personally, but I do like when you tell them why the head of X country is coming or what the policies on COVID are now because people are very confused and nervous. So the democratization information that President Trump presided over means that more people had more access to more credible information than ever before. Not all information is credible. That's a given. Um, like the Mueller collusion, illusion, delusion for three years. Like the let's impeach a president twice and not convict him. Like the uh, you you name it, all the nonsense about following the science. They can put a mask on a five-year-old. They're following the science, but they can't look at a five-month-old sonogram and follow the science and tell you what they see on the screen. So, look, I just believe that because everybody can access information free of charge and instantly now, and everybody can get online, that more people are reassessing the two parties and their positions and saying, hold on, that doesn't work anymore. And in so many ways, the Democratic Party has um, abandoned its core constituencies by taking advantage of them, by believing, well, I can go play over here on this field and you won't abandon me. But, you know, people, a lot of um, voters of color, whether it's Asian-American, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, they're second-guessing that. And I have to give the RNC a ton of credit here, Monica. The, The community centers they've erected in 30 or 32 cities and towns across this country, very diverse areas, I know one in Ohio, a couple down the Rio Grande Valley, over here in Orange County. It's been unbelievably helpful in making sure that folks who want to know more about the party or about the positions or about the policies and the difference in the two major parties and its candidates, they're literally able to walk into a center in their own community and ask those questions. Rather than just have people spit commercials at you in 30-second sound bites. Um, once every two to four years, you go in and you ask your questions and you get them answered. And it's the old saying, if you build it, they will come. But we, you know, I think the other problem the Democrats are running into is they pretend that they can tell America what's important to them. No, Americans tell us what's important to them. We don't tell them. And the issue set is pretty much, it's pretty much solidified right now. It's inflation, it's education, it's border security, it's national security, it's rising crime, it's drugs coming off our border. Sure, I think abortion and guns and these Supreme Court cases will motivate both the gun-grabbing activists and the pro-Second Amendment crowd. I think it will engage pro-lifers and enrage some pro-choicers, there's no question. But all of that changes also, Monica, if we continue to see... I think unpeaceful protest and tendencies towards violence and assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh, if not his family, including two school-age daughters. Mm-hmm. This stuff has to stop, and people should be talking about it every single day. We have 27 Democrats who recently voted against increasing the funding for security for our nine Supreme Court justices, not just the ones Donald Trump, but they're all nine of them, of course. And uh, that should be a no-brainer. That should be a nonpartisan issue that has full bipartisan support, and yet it doesn't. So I'm, I'm very concerned, as are many Americans, that even issues where you do not need to wear your blue or red uniform 24-7, 365, somehow seep into the political discourse and people take sides on issues like whether or not our Supreme, our nine Supreme Court, and frankly, their staffs 
should have uh, should have more security. All the nonsense things this country spends our taxpayer funds on, that one should be a no-brainer. Yes, absolutely. And it gets to my earlier point, Kellyanne, about jumping the shark because the Democrat neo-communists cannot help themselves and, and then they put themselves in an untenable political position. And I think we're going to see, we're, we're, we've already started to see a massive realignment and we're going to hit a quick break, Kellyanne, but I think President Trump began this realignment or at least recognized it in 2015, 2016, and rode that wave and, and certainly uh, locked a lot of this in. But the, the left needs a permanent underclass in order to politically succeed. So that included all of those Democrat core constituencies that now see that they have gone way too far, that they are not serving their interests. And that's why they're taking a second look at the Republican Party, if not joining us completely. So this realignment is earth shattering. It's a political earthquake. And it's also going to be, I think, very long term. I don't think this is just about 2022 and 2024. I think this is a long term realignment. But I want to ask you about that. And we're going to get into your book, which is so rich in history and detail. It's such a contribution to the historical record. Kellyanne, I really want to delve into it. More with Kellyanne Conway coming straight up. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, Eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy, and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier, too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Okay, we are back with Kellyanne Conway. Her brand new memoir zoomed right to number one at the New York Times list. It's called Here is the well, I should, I should say, here's the deal, not here is the deal. Here's the deal, Kellyanne Conway. Um, Kellyanne, I love this memoir. It is just, it's brilliantly written. It's brutally honest. It, it's so candid in so many ways. And I wanted to ask you, let, let's go back to 2015, because you do write about this, about how eventually you got to President Trump and that campaign. But early on, you began working with Senator Ted Cruz's campaign. So how did you view 
candidate Trump at that time. Did you consider him a real contender? I know you were working with one of his uh, rivals, obviously. But how did you view the campaign in its fluidity at the time? And then how did you make the move to the Trump campaign? Well, it's a great question. I do reveal all of that in the book. Here's the deal. But I think it's important to go back. Well, first of all, Ted Cruz came in second. So I did get to work for number one and number two in the campaign in 2016, where there was an embarrassment of riches in terms of very qualified, highly qualified and very deeply committed men and women running on the Republican side. And I still think the bench on the Republican side is is much fuller for 2024. We'll see what President Trump decides. But even beyond that, Monica. Um, so in 2015, I got an offer from Mr. Trump and his campaign and Corey Lewandowski, Michael Cohen was there. I got an offer and I decided ultimately to go to the, to run a Ted Cruz super PAC because I did not have experience with super PACs. I wanted the experience there. And I was torn between working for the Trump campaign or the Cruz super PAC, but they were really my only two options in the end because they were both headquartered in, they were both located in Manhattan. And that's very near to where my family was living at the time, Monica, over the bridge in New Jersey. And George, of course, was going to New York City every day for his job at the law firm. And I think the working moms out there can understand that our choices are first and foremost formed by the needs of our families, particularly the need of my family at the time, because we had and still have four school-aged children. At the time, they were barely, um, well, they were six, seven, 11, and 11. So obviously their needs would come first. It wasn't like I can move somewhere else in the country to, to work on a presidential campaign. So I said no to Mr. Trump early on because I wasn't convinced that that campaign was going to do much polling. And I was a pollster of many years, not a pollster, folks, not a pollster. Don't start asking about your draper and your furniture. I have no skills in that department, <laughs> but a pollster. And um, a fully recovered attorney at that, Monica. And so I was convinced they wouldn't do any polling that, you know, Mr. Trump would say what he had said to me over a course of years, because I knew him for many years at that point. The poll's right here, honey, right, you know, pointing to his head or his heart. And sure, here's a guy who deserves a ton of credit for um, operating according to instinct, his feel for the people, his feel for timing. Here's somebody who thought about running for president in 1980, again in 2012, against President Obama and his reelect. And then finally saw the right timing, the right for, for his presidential run in 2015, 2016. So, um, but I always kept in touch with Trump. And I had already known him because George and I lived in the Trump World Tower, one of his buildings in Manhattan. Uh, we bought that when we were a married couple. And and I sat on the board and got to know Trump pretty well. And he would call me a couple times a year and ask me what I thought. I just saw you on TV, Kellyanne, or I was just on Fox and Friends. Did you hear me talk about China? And indeed, Monica, I and the rest of us did hear him talk about China. Donald Trump, the private citizen, the successful business owner, real estate developer, and then number one TV show in The Apprentice back in the day. Here's a guy who is becoming pre-verified to the country as a leader, somebody who they can see, they, they saw that he did the work, he delivered the results. The results were golf courses and high-rise buildings and a TV show. So he didn't just, all these people say, well, I'm a businessman too, I can do that. Well, can you? Because it wasn't just that he was a businessman, it's that he was Donald Trump and everybody knew him. But you know what he was doing that was so clever? And it's directional for the future. And it really impressed me in 2015 and 2016 as I watched these other candidates just really hew so closely and carefully, taking very few risks, Monica, to, to, to take on issues that weren't number one, two, three, or four. So they were all talking about the economy. They're all talking about Obamacare. They're all talking about foreign policy. They're all talking about Obama himself. Fine. But Donald Trump 
was talking about China. China's eating our lunch. China's going to take over. They're going to be the number one superpower soon. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole economy, too much is made in China. We have shipped our jobs and our wealth over to China. The other thing that Trump did was he took he took issues like trade and immigration, Monica, that had been mired in single digits, and he elevated them into the public consciousness, and he built a campaign around them. And what I saw in him, somebody who grew up very modestly in southern New Jersey, halfway between Philadelphia and Atlantic City, where the men in my life, my cousins, uncles, and extended family were all in the private unions, iron workers, welders, carpenters, or hairdressers, you name it. They were all in the private union. Nobody had gone to college. I heard Donald Trump talk about a forgotten man, forgotten woman, blighted storefronts, burnt out, hollowed out factories. And I was nodding my head along with them and him. And he touched on, he touched on this economic angst. And these people weren't angry. They were angst-ridden. They had anxiety, not anger. There's a difference. And when they started showing up at rallies, Monica, it was very clear to me and all of us, he had not erected just a sort of conventional camp, political campaign. He had built a movement and people felt like they were a part of that. And then Donald Trump, I want history to show he went where no Republican presidential candidate had ever gone before, asking a woman, me, to run the presidential campaign. Only three Democrats had asked women to do that, but no one had ever succeeded. And history must show when they say, oh, you know, Kellyanne Conway won the election in 2016. No, we got to put a comma and it's Donald Trump who put her there. He did that. Yes. And it was such it was it was such an incredible moment for me as your friend to see you appointed as the first female campaign manager and running that incredibly dynamic Wild West campaign back in 2016 with a candidate of the kind nobody had ever seen before, Kellyanne. It was just such an exhilarating time. And I want you to take us back to election night 2016, because we've all seen that iconic photo of then-president-elect Trump raising your hand in triumph that night. And you were in that gorgeous red and black dress with a smile that beamed around the world. And it was such an astonishing moment. I I remember being live on Fox that night and um, uh, Megyn Kelly whispered to me across the set. She said, I'm coming to you first because I was out there very (laughs) within like 48 hours of Trump coming down the escalator telling Bill O'Reilly he's going to win. And I remember Megyn Kelly looking at me across the set Kellyanne. And she said, Monica, when he's done with his speech, I'm coming to you first. And I was so emotional, Kellyanne, on that set. I had tears streaming. And I looked at Megan Kelly and I I waved to her like, no, you got to give me a minute to compose myself because it was so overwhelming. So if that was true for me, describe what it was like for you who had run this campaign um, with this extraordinary candidate and what you knew was coming, not just for you personally, but for the country and the world. It must have been an out-of-body experience for you. That's the best way to describe it, out-of-body. I only wish that I could have chironed or, or labeled, you know, titled that, cap- caption, I guess, as the kids say, captioned that moment and said, this is a woman who hasn't slept in 28 hours. <laughs> um, just to, but, so it was out-of-body. Of course, my husband, George, was in the audience at the New York Hilton, you know, crying in his black MAGA hat saying she did it. She did. it. He was so proud of his wife and he was so proud of Donald Trump, the candidate he supported. So I know we'll discuss that breakdown later on, I I suppose. But that's who we were as a couple and as a family. And I'll tell you, um, first of all, I don't have I don't have any primacy in sharing that moment. What you said is absolutely right. That moment belonged to the people. That moment belonged to you and Megyn Kelly, and me, 
and and the the forgotten man, forgotten woman, forgotten child. I like to say because I'm a school choice charter school advocate, as is Donald Trump. It really belonged to people who always felt Monica that they could not access the government in the same way other people could. They could, when's my turn? I'm honest. I work hard. I pay my dues. I live a good life. When's my turn? They always felt like they had their nose pressed up against the glass, looking in, just saying, "How can I get a piece of that?" And, and when will somebody recognize me? Where's my voice? Where's my visibility? But I tell you, I was also very naive, Monica Crowley, about what it would mean for me. I had not anticipated eight figures worth of contracts in front of me. I had not anticipated um, the kind of becoming a household name. I mean, because we were just in the moment day by day, Wild West, really riding that horse, you know, um, guns a blazing. And I'm glad, though, that I will forevermore have a living, breathing video catalog that none of my colleagues read, male colleagues on the campaign have, which is going on TV six, seven, eight times a day, talking about strategy. Why are we going back to Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania is our reach state. Yes, a Republican hasn't won it in 1988. Yes, a Republican hasn't won Wisconsin presidentially since 1984. But here's why Trump will win and here's how we're doing it. I said that ahead of Election Day. And I guess I should have been not so naive to recognize a lot of the folks, even the ones I had worked with on the campaign and was going into the White House with, were trying to undercut that by saying, well, I knew he'd win. Or I, OK, well, we didn't see you on TV. I don't have a text or an email saying that. So I look, I think the way you saw Trump as a winner early on is the way I saw it all coming together. You had been on radio and TV and talking to people, respectfully listening to people very carefully and knowing what people wanted to hear and what had vexed and perplexed them for so long, Monica, that you saw Donald Trump as the wish fulfillment of that. I'm a pollster by trade. I had seen the polls over the years. And for years, people would say to pollsters like me, I want a president who has a ton of experience, but not in Washington, has never been in politics. And you're scratching your head mm-hmm. and saying, well, who can that be? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was Donald Trump. And I think the election of Barack Obama eight years earlier where apart from the obvious, the first African-American president, I think the election of um, President Trump eight years earlier paved the way in part for Trump because um, it people took a chance on somebody who four years earlier was a state senator sitting in Springfield, Illinois. <laughs> um, you know, And so yes. they wanted somebody who was not part of the swamp, et cetera. And, and they did that back-to-back elections. They, they, they elevated two people who could not be seen as part of Washington. And then, of course, they went all the way to Joe Biden and the opposite, the Loch Ness Monster, the swamp. But I think what you saw early on, we all started to see later on. And um, and Trump stuck with it, didn't he? You know, people said, oh, he can't win. And I thought the other thing that Donald Trump was able to do, and this is something that needs to continue, and I hear us drifting backward a little bit here and there. The other thing he was able to do, Monica, was blow to smithereens this fiction of electability. And electability has sucked the lifeblood out of so many great conservative and Republican men and women running at all stages. But even for president, electability pretends that I know if you will or will not win long before an election. And it robs the people of their choice and their voice in deciding who their nominees and indeed their elected representatives should be. Um, So it's, oh, Bush can win and and, and she, Hillary can win. Obama can't win. Trump can't win. He can win. He can't win. You know, the Democrats never listened to that, Monica. Jimmy Carter was told you can't win. 
Bill Clinton was told you can't win. Barack Obama was told you can't win. Wait your turn. They all said, thanks so much for the advice. In between the three of them had five, 20 years worth of uh, presidential time. Republicans were like, oh, okay, I can't win. I'll step aside. So Trump had disproven all the critics saying, you can't win. What a joke. You can't win. And that helped. The day he made me campaign manager, I asked him for three things. But one was exactly that. I said, Mr. Trump, if you can just, if I, we could just hold hands together and you can trust me to keep blowing away this fiction of electability. If we don't focus on electability that you can't win and she can win, she's got it in the bag and focus not on electability, which pretends I know if you can or can't win, but an electoral college, which is how you do or don't win. Then we can focus on Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, North Carolina, Florida, and Monica. Even states we ended up not winning, but focused on like Colorado, Nevada, and New Hampshire. What did they all have in common? Obama, Biden carried them twice with over 50% of the vote. Number two, Hillary had not been over 50% in any credible poll and staying there in any of the states for quite a while. And number three, and most importantly, a Republican had won statewide governor and or senator in those 11 or so states during the Obama-Biden years. So they're not allergic to Republican leadership. In fact, when it comes to choosing a chief executive, they're going Republican as they had for governor like a Scott Walker in Wisconsin or Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. They had all elected Republican governors, even though they went for Obama-Biden in 2008 and 2012. And Trump's looking at me and he said, okay, we can do that. And I said, well, who do I have to talk to? And he said, he's looking around. He said, you're talking to me. Monica, <laughs> you know how these campaigns usually run. They're all layered up, right? They're all hierarchical. Yep. They're all layered up. You can never get to the principal. And I, I, really, I literally was in disbelief that And I said, and I really write in the book, and I know you'll appreciate this, people look at us as strong, intelligent women who are courageous, have moxie. And you know what? All that aside, there's always, there's always a little bit of doubt, right? Self-doubt. And I, and I said, if a man had just become Donald Trump's campaign manager, they would have run down to that corral of press in, in the, the famous atrium of Trump Tower and said, I am now the campaign manager. We will win this thing. Instead, I went down the side entrance. I had never done that before. I went down the residential <laughs> side and I was sort of trying to disappear. I was so nervous. I was going to leak it or he was going to leak it. I love it, but I do call him leaker in chief. And um, anyway, the only person I told about that big offer that night being the first woman ever to run a, manage a, pres- a Republican presidential campaign was my husband, George. And George said, Kellyanne, you're going to do this. Not only did he urge me, Monica, but he insisted And, you know, it's great to have that person in your life who believes so deeply in you and sees what other people maybe can't see. And George Conway, with a tip of the hat to Hamilton and Eminem all at the same time, he he said, you're taking your shot. You're not going to give up your shot. I'll help more with the kids. And he was incredibly supportive of me, of President Trump. And that lasted all the way to the two of us, each of us accepting a very big job from President Trump in his administration. Me, of course, as senior senior counselor to the president and George um, as the chief of the civil division at the Department of Justice. Very big job, as you know. It's the person who would really be in charge of the U.S. government's position on on all the civil non-criminal cases facing the administration. 
Kellyanne, I want to stop there because I've got to hit another quick break, but you raised George and you write very candidly about your marriage and the impact on your children being in the harsh glare of the spotlight. So I I do want to ask you about that. I do remember George seeing him at all kinds of Trump events during that campaign, and he was lovely and enthusiastic about the candidacy of Donald Trump and so on. So I'd like to get to that with you as well as the 2020 election and, and your hopes for America moving forward here. Is the American dream still alive? More with Kellyanne Conway. Her new memoir is called Here's the Deal. Go get it. Read it. You will love it. Before we hit this quick break, I just want to take a minute to welcome our great new sponsor, Birch Gold Group. You know, you hear me talk a lot on this show about the weakening economy because I spent two years at the Treasury Department where we had a booming Trump economy. And now with Biden in there, the economy is just pretty much falling apart. In fact, today we got a brand new final print on first quarter GDP. It shrank more than expected negative 1.6%. That's almost unheard of. They do a couple of prints, three prints, uh, as they revise the numbers and more data comes in. It actually shrank more than expected, which again is very rare. So we are in dire economic straits. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Skyrocketing inflation, 40-year high, and the market, I mean, you look at the market, incredibly volatile. Cryptos have been slammed. And a lot of people are very worried that the necessary but aggressive moves by the Fed could stall out the economy. So what's your plan, guys? You got to have a plan. Now might be a very good time for you to diversify into gold, the most stable asset in the history of the world. And Birch Gold Group is the company I trust to help you convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold and silver. So text them now. Text MONICA to 989-898 and get your free no obligation info kit on gold from Birch Gold Group. They are the precious metals professionals I trust and so should you. Text MONICA to 989-898 and secure your savings now. To help you secure your future and your family's future, text MONICA to 989-898 right now. Okay, we are back with my good friend, Kellyanne Conway. Her new memoir, number one New York Times bestseller. I'm so proud of her. The book is called Here's the Deal. It's a memoir and it's absolutely a page turner. All right, Kellyanne, before the break, uh, you mentioned George. We were talking about how during the 2016 campaign, he was an enthusiastic supporter of President Trump's. I can testify to that because I saw both of you at various events and, and he was just right up there cheering President Trump on. Uh, when he was still a candidate, uh, perhaps more than most. So it was quite astonishing then to see him turn against Trump and therefore, in a lot of our eyes, against you as well in a very public and frankly vicious kind of way. And I think for those of us on the outside, particularly those of us like me who consider myself a friend of yours, it was very difficult and and really kind of bizarre for us to watch all of that unfold. I can't imagine you actually going through it. So what do you think led to George's change of heart about President Trump? And how did you handle it at the time behind closed doors? And Monica, I do address all this in my memoir, Here's the Deal. And the reason I do that is um, I was a public 
servant when I was in the White House. So I didn't respond in kind. You've got, I had the two tweeting men in my life, my boss, <laughs> my husband, George Conway. And for Trump, of course, we know he used the prolific tweeter. But in 2016, because of Donald Trump, that was known as the year of the tweet. But in 2016, George Conway, my husband, has sent zero tweets. He now has sent over 110,000 of them. Mm-hmm. And it just tells you not just a change of heart about Trump or maybe even me, but just a change in the way he spends his time, the way he spends his days. As you know, George is a brilliant litigator, superstar at Wax Hillicum for years, uh, Yale, school, Yale Law School graduate at 23. Um, the whole thing, I said, you know, it's, 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 it's unbelievable, um, you know, what a superstar I wasn't. This is not James Carville and Mary Madeline. I want to make that very clear to people. I was not in on a plan here so that we would always either be part of the Trump world or part of the resistance. This was incredibly and deeply hurtful and permanently scarring to me and my family. Not because George owes allegiance to Donald Trump or any political party, Monica, but because his vows um, 21 years ago were for to love, honor, and cherish me. And, and also because, as you and I both pointed out, he was all in for Donald Trump and all in for me being the campaign manager, um, not just as my person, my confidant, my sounding board, but also as somebody who was helping night after night, coming to Trump Tower, seeing how he can help out after his own job was done, if he can give me a ride in to talk to me, um, insisting on it during some hairy, heady times like the Access Hollywood tape release, agreeing and insisting with me that I not. Um, relinquished my role as campaign manager, going to those debates, um, you know, separately. He'd be there in Las Vegas, et cetera, at the debate. So it was quite startling. What changed his mind about Trump? Well, according to George's tweets, he just decided that Donald Trump was not fit for office. And but he didn't decide it right away. I, I think there is a there has been a, a, a miscue at the timing. I put in the book how you know George continued to go to Donald Trump's White House the entire calendar year of 2017. Sometimes, well, often as a special guest, as a privilege of being married to um, a senior advisor to Donald Trump, our kids enjoyed the fruits of the Trump White House. But George did, too. I remember he and I being seated right alongside of Donald and Melania Trump on December 1st, 2017. That's practically the end of that first year. Monica at the senior staff dinner. George enjoyed himself, et cetera. So, um, look, I think what happened with George is... He got a little taste of attention and affection from people who never really cared much for him. And I and, and worse, some people who now claim him as their own were pretty unkind about him. Where is he? Who is he? Why doesn't he come to anything with you? We don't know him. Nobody ever had asked him his opinion on constitutional law or political campaigns or worse, um, psychiatry. When George is writing op-eds and going on TV about the DSM-5 and psychoanalyzing Donald Trump, who's not as patient as a non-psychiatrist. I think things like that are a bridge too far. That just shows you the hungry, thirsty mainstream media wanting to cause division, wanting to embarrass me, wanting to wanting Donald Trump to say to one of his most effective spokespeople and policy minds, um, you need to get out of here, Kellyanne. And Donald Trump was under enormous pressure from some of my colleagues at the White House and people like Brad Parscale, the very jealous 20 and, and an effective 2020 campaign manager who obviously didn't achieve what I achieved four years earlier. He, the people like that were pressuring President Trump to dump me. And I have to give him credit. He stood by me. Monica, I write in my book, Here's the Deal, it would have been totally understandable and acceptable for President Trump to say to me, listen, honey, we love you. You'll always be part of the political extended political family here. But I, I got to worry about Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. I can't worry about George Comey's tweets. But instead, he was President Trump was worried about me. 
he thought that maybe this husband tweeting thing was a bridge, you know, a mountain too cl- steep for me to climb and always asked me how it affected my children. So uh, listen, I write very lovingly and nostalgically about George in my book for most of the book because our courtship was fun. We've been married for two decades, Monica. That's a very long time. We never married. We've never been married to anybody else. We have four children together. The soul. I have four teenagers. Pray for me, everyone. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and also, I just also, there, there's also this saying that you should care what your kids think about you when they're 30 more than when they're 15. And I'm going with that. I hope they'll look back mm-hmm. at this time and they'll read the book and they'll see how I don't understand why daddy would, uh, would you know, would I think cash in our marriage for politics. It makes no sense to me. Um, but I will always, you know, I, I do put in the book and you touched on this so we can move on in the conversation here, Monica, that democracy will survive. America will survive. I'm not sure George and I will survive. And that makes me very sad. Mm-hmm. And I, I also write in my book, if you know, if, if, if you're out of sorts with somebody because of politics, because of Biden or Trump or politics, pick up the phone. You're not going to agree on that, but other things bind you together. And you need to find a way, I think, to do what I did with my own father. And I know you did with your own father, which is fathers who weren't there for us when we were younger. We learn to forgive and we learn to heal and we learn to be bigger people because we are going to be on the receiving and seeking side of redemption and forgiveness and mercy also. So it's important to give it. Yes, uh, that was a beautiful statement, Kellyanne. Thank you so much for sharing that and for writing so frankly in this book about your family, not just your marriage, but your children. And we know that they were subjected to really harsh unacceptable, inappropriate media coverage while grown man Hunter Biden just skates along committing all manner of crime. But your children were put through the public ringer and in particular your daughter, Claudia, and I know you write about this. And, you know, uh, Kelly, and what's very interesting to me is in the end, you did decide to leave the Trump White House. I think it was August of 2020. Did you, and, and you said, less drama, more mama, meaning my children need me. And that is my paramount concern right now. Did you also feel, though, the cross-current pressure of an obligation to stay through the election? I did feel that. And the offers were on the table. Obviously, the president didn't want me to leave. And he said, go take care of your family, but you don't need to leave. And I think in part, he knew other people were sort of flitting in and out, um, especially during COVID, not always you know, physically present there. So he was just trying to give me the latitude of take care of your family, but you don't need to resign. And I I felt duty bound to go whole hog and make a very, very clear break because, because the kids didn't need me. And part of it, Monica was what you said, but part of it was we had just gotten word in late August days before the school year was about to begin that in the one County where three of my four children were about to go to school, the health commissioner there unilaterally single-handedly decided, Oh, we're going to start the school year online. After everybody said, go have a great summer, and they did, it's like, oh, we're going to start the school year online. So I could not imagine my children starting their second school year with me only two and a half miles away, but not not physically and fully present to navigate that. And you know what, Monica, I may have been one of the more high profile examples of it, but I'm really just one of the three million women in this country that working moms who were pushed out of their jobs because of screen time is school time. Mm-hmm. And those many of those women never went back to their jobs. They're trying to find a work from home situation or they're still because now what are they grappling with? They're grappling with the mental health and emotional shrapnel for so many of these teens and tweens. They're grappling with lost learning. They're grappling with, you know, I think just the 
the unintended consequences, but I don't think unforeseen, but unintended consequences of protracted screen time and school time. But I was able to stay that I, w- I had that offer and I had been given another big offer that I, I touch on in the book, but I really haven't talked about in any other interview. So you're the first, which is I had a huge offer to go over to the campaign. It was said to me, you, President, Vice President Pence, Ivanka and Don Jr. will have your own planes, your own, obviously the Vice President does, your own campaign team, your own schedule, if you could just go out and keep your own campaign schedule. So I'm not going to command rallies like Donald Trump, but I can have, I don't know, a few thousand people here and there. That's what they thought. I have it all in writing. And I didn't do that either. And I really wanted to help the 2020 campaign, but frankly, it wasn't my campaign. Um, I felt like I would be sleeping in someone else's bed. I disagreed with so many of the um, grievous errors, the way they were spending their time and their money. I felt the hunger and swagger of the 2016 campaign, the joy on the job of the candidate was all gone. And it was gone for a campaign in 2020, the Trump-Pence reelected had $1.4 billion, Monica Crowley, and proved the old adage that the fastest way to make a small fortune is to have a very large one and waste most of it. They were becoming much like Hillary in Brooklyn 2016, too much money, too much time. Um, And I think a, a candidate who was not being well served. And so for President Trump, sure, COVID limited his ability to go out and do those rallies to the extent and to, uh, to the extent the breadth and depth he wanted to and that he was accustomed to doing. But at the same time, I think that campaign never adapted to COVID as the number one concern for so many frightened Americans, is including those women who are the healthcare consumer, we're the health con- we're, the, we're the healthcare deciders and consumers and providers in this country, a majority of them. So there, there was that. There was a lot of there were a lot of miscues. I felt they didn't take. They didn't understand that the, the whole um, Trump level of accomplishments, that, that the roster of Trump accomplishments as president and couple that, marry that up with COVID compelled universal mail-in ballots and Zuck bucks and everything that was going on right under their noses. Yes. That I feel a $1.4 billion campaign, Monica, should have been more attuned to and accommodating of, look, politics, it's two things. And moving forward, people have to remember there's two things that we don't talk enough about. Politics is the art of telling voters what they can't see, not what they can see, which is why I'm also against too much of the Joe Biden has lost it. Look at his, he can't walk, he can't talk, he can't think. I got all that. But people can see them. Tell them what they can't see. Remind them of that chaotic, deadly Afghanistan withdrawal. Remind them of of, of, of killing the Keystone Pipeline, which is why the gas prices are where they are. Remind them of how things were before. Number two, politics also means you have to invest time and money and thought into the non-sexy stuff. It's not all Super Bowl ads and big rallies. You also have to invest in the non-sexy stuff, like making sure there's ballot access, voter education, candidate recruitment. Make sure there's not ballot harvesting. Make sure Zuckerberg and his wife aren't trying to steal this election and tip the scales right under your noses by giving $1 million plus grants in in precincts that were won 92% of the time by Joe Biden. So I don't think Donald Trump was well served by that campaign. I'm very frank about it. I call out Jared Kushner and Brad Parscale in the campaign. I name names because it should never happen again. And donors should know what happened in their money. And voters should know it's not just as simple as saying, oh, the election was stolen. It was unfair. You have to read up on what was done and what was not done because it's all directional for the future. 
Yes, and it's such a critical point, Kellyanne, and it led to your leadership and your steady hand on that 2016 campaign was so necessary. And while that was a novel campaign, and it's very difficult to recapture that lightning in a bottle a second time for anybody, even someone as magical and extraordinary as Donald Trump, but I agree with you, we all saw it in 2020, it ended up being more of a kind of a lumbering kind of operation. And I understand four years of president being constantly under attack as he was, as we all were, it it takes a lot out of you. But to your point about the nuts and bolts of running a successful campaign, they just weren't doing it. Were they, and I just have a couple of final questions for you, uh, Kellyanne. And again, we're talking to Kellyanne Conway. Her fantastic new memoir is called Here's the Deal. Go get it. Um, it, it. Would you prefer that Donald Trump be future oriented now? He's spending a lot of time talking about 2020 and uh, the voter irregularities that we know exist. Um, but would you prefer that he pivot at this point from talking about the past to talking about the future? There's no question. And he and I do disagree on that respectfully. He, I think we all know that elections are about the future, not the past. And if he wants to talk about the past, he can talk about his past accomplishments. He can compare in a very binary way and contrast Monica Crowley, his record and Joe Biden's record. I think the cleanest, clearest way for Donald Trump to be president again, if that's what he decides and he and his family decide is best, is to just do a cage match rematch against Joe Biden. Get the rematch going because if the president, if President Trump wants to talk about the past, he could talk about two dollar a gallon gasoline. He could talk about Putin not in Ukraine. He could talk about Israel, our best friend in the region, if not in the world, uh, being more secure and safe. He can talk about building the wall. He could talk about drug overdose deaths down for the first time in thirty years under his leadership. He and First Lady Melania Trump focusing on that public policy issue. Together, now we've got over 107,000 overdose deaths and counting. You fill up Yankee Stadium twice and still look for seats. That's how many. Um, he can talk about it, the, the recalibrated reciprocal fair trade deals, the manufacturing base. He, there's so many things. If he wants to talk about the past, the past of his four years as president compared to just the year and a half of Biden and the complete contrast. But talking about the 2020 election does not get us closer to the 2024 election. I would argue doesn't even get us to the best messaging for the 2022 election. He knows how I feel. I'm one of the few people willing to tell him. And he has every right as I told him at the time, to talk about improprieties, irregularities, malfeasance. But when you start talking about theft and fraud, you're talking about crimes. And as you and I both know, crime a crime merits a very high burden of proof. And if you fail to meet that burden of proof in a timely factor, in a timely fashion, excuse me, and produce the evidence that you need to prove those crimes, you put yourself in a situation where they found themselves at the end of 2020, Monica, at the beginning of 2021, where they were unable to produce the evidence in time for the December 14th certification of the electors for Biden and Harris And then other people came up with the idea, well, that's not the final bite at the apple. The final bite is January 6th, when a vice president, in this case, Pence, four years before that, Biden, ironically, and years before Quayle, had to certify elections against themselves, you know, against their better interests. And so I say all that because Trump should do what Trump does best, which is tell people, I'm the guy who fixed this economy. I'm the guy 
who kept promises. I'm the guy who hasn't been in the swamp for 50 years and can't find his way out of a paper bag. I'm the guy who did it once. I'll do it again. Nobody can quite say that the way he can say it, but only he is going to be able to say it in a way that's clear and concise and credible so that people understand we're looking toward the future and not the past. I think it's very, very clear. Um, and, and really even going into the fall, I think the difference between winning 15 seats and 50 seats um, goes on the, it, it centers on the Republicans having a very uh, muscular, robust, and easy to understand policy message, Monica, that's more about policy and less about practicum, if you will, less about process. And so I, w- I would answer that for 2022 also um, a- about the future, not the past. And Donald Trump can project that. And if he decides, they know he wants to run again. I just talked to him yesterday and I reminded him, you know, when he was talking about the January 6th committee, I remind him that is the past. Like January 6th is talking about the past. So if you object to all of that, think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about how few Americans are tuning in to this. They actually want to talk about the issue set, inflation, immigration, national security, border security, education, crime. You know, we have a 25% increase in crime in our major cities since Biden got there a year and a half ago, Monica. I mean, the issue set is so obvious. It's so front and center. You see a great deal of progress when you see people like uh, Budin being recalled as the DA. You see Rick Sanchez making a big move to be LA's next mayor. Um, You see... Joe Biden himself, if not other Democrats, Monica, saying, oh, I'm not for defunding the police. No way. We should be funding the police. Well, that's new. You know, and I think I think Donald Trump can look back and not just say, I built this. I'm going to build it again. But I also told you so. I told you Joe Biden would be a disaster. I told you you couldn't do this. I told you he would unravel all these great policies. Yes. But, you know, the last thing I'll say to you is um, this country normally, normally elects the presidential candidate, Republican or Democrat who's seen as more optimistic, hopeful, and has more joy in the job, just more uplifting with their promises. And we should think about that. There's a reason Hillary lost twice. There's a reason that, there's a reason even, you know, Clinton beat people that we admire, like Dole and and um, uh, George, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Obama beat, um, beat McCain and Romney. And then, of course, George W. Beat, George w. Bush beat carry and be Al Gore. People want that uplifting, optimistic, more hopeful, less, you know, less um, complaining set of messages. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave it here with you, Kellyanne. I have so much more to get to with you, but we're going to leave it here. And I'd love to have you come back as we head into November and, of course, 24. But I agree with you on President Trump and, and you and I just, we love the man to, to death. Um, but it's one thing to want to correct the historical record with the evidence that you have of voter irregularities and fraud and so on. That's one thing. But if he intends to run again, he needs to be much more future oriented because the American people are, are not going to read the history. It's important for the history books if he wants to do that in a certain context. But if he's going to run again, he needs to be focused on, as he was in 15 and 16, focused on the needs and insecurities of the American people and addressing those going forward because he can say, I did it once, I can do it again. He's the only one who can do that. And hopefully you will be at his right hand to make that magic happen a second time. Kellyanne, or as he says, a third time. Killian Conway, the new memoir is called Here's the Deal. It is absolutely fantastic, and it's also a very important read. Kellyanne, I am honored to call you my friend. Thank you so much for being here. Monica, you're beautiful, you're brilliant, and people should know you have always been pro-woman. 
you are always been, you've always lifted up the other women in the circle, never seen anybody as a competitor so much as a collaborator. And I'm honored to call you friend. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. God bless you and your listeners. Uh, well, God, God bless you too. And thank you for those very generous words. My good friend, Kellyanne Conway, the memoir is called Here's the Deal. Fantastic show, guys. I'm so glad to have you on board. What a show for midweek, right? All right, email time. Send me emails about what's on your mind to Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Barry has a really interesting email, so I wanted to highlight that one today. Barry writes, Monica, exceptionally glad that your voice will be on this podcast. Thank you, Barry. Then he writes, I hear much about the GOP taking over the House and possibly the Senate in November, but very little about what their plans are. No unified voice by Republicans on what they are going to do. I am very skeptical about their ability to lead the charge. There was little to no support as a united front in supporting President Trump, and I place some blame on them for not having the guts to back him. So, if we flip the House and the Senate, what are they planning on doing? I want us to hit the ground running. Interested in your thoughts on this, Monica, and God bless you for carrying the flag, Semper Fi. Well, thank you so much, Barry, and Semper Fi, God bless you. I assume you're a Marine uh, because of the Semper Fi, so thank you so much for your service, and God bless you. And it's also great to hear from you. I love hearing from uh, active duty military, military veterans. So if you're out there listening, send me an email because I so appreciate you. But uh, I'm so glad, Barry, that uh, first of all, you're enjoying this podcast. And I'm also glad that you raised this point. Your point about the Republicans is an excellent one. Now, I think, and maybe this is a big assumption because with the Republicans you know, the stupid party, you never know. But what I think they are doing, and and actually this is wise on their part for once, what I think that they are doing is playing by the old rule, when your enemy is destroying himself, do not interrupt it. And the Democrats are imploding. So the Republicans don't want to interrupt that. And Barry, as a military man, you know, when the enemy is in the process of destroying himself, you don't want to, you don't want to intervene and save him, which the Republicans constantly do for the Democrats. But here it looks like, and I, I hope they continue to pursue this, but it looks like Republicans don't want to intervene and stop the high-velocity implosion going on on the Democratic side. This is smart strategy, at least now for the time being. But it's also true that at some point you must offer voters a good, positive, compelling reason to vote for you rather than just against the other guy. Republicans may feel like they don't need to do that, since this is such a catastrophe that voters will reject the Democrats no matter what, and maybe they're right. But I do think you strengthen your case by telling voters what you will do once in power. What will the Republicans do once they're in control? Well, first of all, stop everything 
stop the entire Biden legislative agenda. They can't stop the executive action, but you can stop the legislative agenda. All of the spending, uh, a lot of the regulations, uh, some of them at least come out of uh, Congress. You can stop all of that. And then they will investigate all of the Biden family corruption and things like the open border and the targeting of parents by the DOJ. They've got to do all of that. Now, will it lead to anything like indictments, criminal referrals? Probably not. Remember people like Lindsey Graham out there? Oh, we're going to get to the bottom of the Russia hoax. And then they don't do anything. They hold a couple of hearings and that's it. But at least let's get the ball rolling Show the American people you're serious about holding these Democrat communists accountable for their criminal activity. Do that. And then they've got to lay the groundwork for what they will run on in 2024. That's where the policy comes in. Talk about what they will do rather than what they won't do. I know it's a balance and they're navigating it now. um, And they're doing pretty well because Democrats are just destroying themselves. But you also have to go to voters and say, yes, they are horrible and you should be voting against them. But for a positive, proactive vote for me, here is what I intend to do. And there you go, Barry. I hope they follow this advice. I hope that's the strategy that they are pursuing. You never know with the Republicans, but if they don't, you better believe it that we on this podcast will be holding them all accountable. Thank you very much, Barry. Okay, keep those emails coming, Podcast at gmail.com, and I might read yours on the air. Okay, that's going to do it for me today. I will see you right back here on Friday for a rollicking good time of a show as we head into Independence Day weekend. Have a great rest of your week. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.